Well, hello, friends. Welcome. Glad you're here. Uh, I guess people saw that it was a hymns class, and so they bailed because they were just scared of what was going to transpire. <laughs> Heaven forbid we make you sing. <clears throat> You've got four hymns there, and we're going to go over them in this order. And I'm really excited to be doing this class with you and with Fred. And what I want to say at the beginning of this is if you like what happened today, phone your local dean and tell your local dean that you want more of this, okay? Phone your local dean. Um, it's attributed to Augustine of Hippo in the 4th century. He said these words, whoever sings prays twice. And what he probably meant by that, what Christians have sort of interpreted through the ages, is there's something powerful about prayer when it's sung. And I don't know if you all realize this, but whenever we sing anything, it's not just a song. It is actually our prayer. If you were to divorce hymns from their music and read them, you'd realize that every last one of them is simply a prayer. And what we're going to kind of talk about today is the power of music wedded with prayer does something extra. And it's not as though it necessarily adds to the truth of it, but I would say it amplifies the truth of a given prayer. Have you ever noticed a difference between when you've seen a text and you've prayed it verbally versus when you've sung it? Even the difference in that experience between singing a text and just praying it, it's almost like something more is going on. Jonathan Edwards in his uh, wonderful book, Religious Affections, talked about the fact that whenever we engage in aesthetic forms of doing something, and so when I extrapolate this for hymns, he says this, whenever we engage in hymns, we, because of the music, are able to see the truth better in its proper colors. And what I think he meant by that is that truth is truth, but sometimes against the backdrop of something beautiful or fitting, which is what art does, is it gives us a fittingness to truth. Uh, against that backdrop, suddenly we're drawn in more deeply and are able to see that truth in its proper colors. So that's really what we want to do today, and I'm excited to do this with my friend and colleague, Fred Teardo, who I would just, I just want to say and brag on him a little bit, I've been around a lot of organists in my short life, and there are good ones and bad ones, and the difference between a good one and a bad one actually isn't their pedigree and training and their skill, although I think the skill is required. Um, I think the difference between a, a good organist and a bad organist in, in a church environment is... Uh, the organist who gets that they're there on a Sunday morning to serve the people, and they play their instruments and they lead the choir in a way that is less about performing for the people and much more about encouraging the people to sing. And you have with you, we have with us, a gem of a person who knows how to paint text like nobody's business on the organ. And we're so grateful. He's going to open up this morning, and then we're going to kind of tag team and go back and forth and sing these hymns as well. Thank you, Zach. I really appreciate it. And then ditto to you, your tremendous colleague, and we're really blessed to have you here. So Zach asked me to give you a rundown of hymnody and uh, the history of congregational hymnody in about five minutes. So fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to kind of hit the big points. And uh, if you have any questions at the end, please feel free to ask. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas defined a hymn as praise to God in the form of song. 
In the early Christian church, Latin chants were known as hymns meant to be sung by the choir, but they were not meant to be sung by the congregation. They were just simply too difficult to sing. Uh, The congregational hymn was actually a child of the Reformation. Luther used hymns, or as he called them, chorales, as ways to teach the faith. They were inspired by German folk songs and the old Latin hymns as well. The meter made them singable, predictable, and composing new texts and music was evangelical in its own nature. But in contrast, Calvin and Zwingli believed that only scripture should be sung in church, as God had provided the hymns through the scripture, specifically the Psalter, the Psalms. We should not write our own. Thus, only psalms were sung in those churches, which led to, you may have heard of the Genevan Psalter. There are some hymns that we sing that are from the Genevan Psalter. Though in many ways, the English church theoretically took to Luther in musical practice, it went the Calvinistic route. And uh, the churches in England and Scotland sang mostly psalms, uh, metrical psalms, uh, some of the old old uh, uh, Scottish chants. We sang a Gloria to, to that music a couple of years ago. Uh, we still have those things in our hymnal. Miles Coverdale, who's known for producing the first printed translation of the Bible in English, he tried to, uh, he gave a shot at the first English hymn book uh, entitled Ghostly Psalms and Spiritual Songs, and it was drawn out of Holy Scripture based on the Wittenberg hymn books of Luther. It failed. Uh, Henry VIII thought it was dull and boring, and he banned it. He totally banned it. Then came the whole book of Psalms in 1562, what we now call the old version, because there was later a newer version. Uh, What we just sang in church, the old hundredth, uh, which is the hymn tune to the doxology, got its name because uh, the original text was a setting of Psalm 100, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. And the tomb got nicknamed, sorry, Psalm 100 is the paraphrase, the tune got nicknamed old hundredth, and there we are. Uh, That was included in this whole book of Psalms. Uh, Then we had the English Civil War, Puritan rule, stalled all progress, then the Restoration, Charles II, things started to pick back up again. Some people tried to, at this point, translate old Latin hymns, failed. We have a couple of remnants of that. Christ the Lord is risen today, or Jesus Christ is risen today, which we sang for Easter Sunday, is an example of one of those old Latin hymns translated in you. Then the new version of the whole book of Psalms came, 1695, by uh, folks like Nahum Tate and Nicholas Brady. You know Nahum Tate from uh, writing, while shepherds washed their flocks by night, or as I like to say, while shepherds washed their socks by night. Um, And what these were, these early English writers were paraphrasing scripture. Think of how while shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down and showed them all around. And it's just a paraphrase of Luke, isn't it? Um, While some have lasted the test of time, many were considered very, very poor paraphrases, and they lost the integrity of the word. One of these people, the great hymn writer Isaac Watts, he complained of these bad paraphrases. So he himself wrote some uh, and uh, paraphrased Psalms. Oh God, our help in ages past is a Psalm uh, paraphrase. Uh, Psalm 90, I'll praise my maker while I've breath, Psalm 146, and these are more successful. He also wrote meter texts on paraphrases of New Testament passages, and these became sort of Christian songs. When I survey the wonders cross is a great example of that. Watts was also credited for writing the first English hymn that was not a direct paraphrase of scripture, and it earned him the title Father of English Hymnody. 
Watts argued that if we could pray to God with sentences that we composed, like Cranmer in the prayer book, then we could surely sing to God with our own verse. And in 1707, he proposed an evangelical system of praise and a renovation of psalmody. He set up a new standard of church song having three distinct characteristics. It should be evangelical, the whole body of church song brought within the light of the gospel. It should be freely composed against the Reformation standard of strict adherence to the scripture or later paraphrasing scripture. And thirdly, it should express the thoughts and feelings of the singers. So out of that, two camps of song arose, one based on Psalms with a new Christological context and the other based on the New Testament. And eventually, Watts had such a following that even into the 19th century, parishioners would refuse to sing any hymns by anyone else. <laughs> then the Methodists through Wesley came. And though Charles Wesley is the one credited with writing, uh, being the great hymn writer, and he wrote over 6,500 of them, and we only know, you know, as, as many as we do, certainly not 6,500. John Wesley wrote hymns first with a very uh, theological mind. Uh, and John Wesley took Watts' criticism even further, to, and he ridiculed the psalmody translations as scandalous, and he wanted to better them. Charles Wesley was eventually cited as the poet of the new movement in hymnal prefaces. They, the Wesleys, they allowed for a new form of congregational song, and it awakened a great happiness and, and supercharged joy in singing. Um, they added three things to the English hymnal. They expanded the repertoire substantially. They birthed the evangelical hymn, and they modified the ideal of the English hymn itself and established new types of hymns, ones that proclaimed unlimited atonement of the free, and the free gospel, hymns derived from Christian experience, hymns for liturgical use. So those three categories. And finally, I'm going to end this. I could go on and on, talk about the evangelical uh, movement a little bit. Uh, the evangelicals didn't really love the hymn as much as the Methodists. And I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a theological historian, but to give you just a little background, um, George Whitfield, before he came to America and started the Great Awakening, he and the Wesleys got on pretty well. And they had converted so many people to the church. And when he left to go to America, he left John Wesley kind of in charge. And then when he got back, John Wesley had pushed some ideas, primarily, I think, predestination and um, also about sin, uh, sinless perfection. And George uh, Whitfield came back and he was sort of like, what'd you do? What'd you do to my church? Um, so then they started to, to do this a bit. But in spite of that, they really helped in the introduction, introduction of hymn singing in the Church of England, along with sort of free gospel thinking, and it was surrounded with great hostility. You may know some, some um, stories about Augustus Toplady, who uh, wrote Rock of Ages that Zach's going to talk about later. He and Wesley couldn't stand each other. In fact, uh, there are many written accounts and attacks. But in spite of that, Toplady included a lot of Wesley's hymns in his own hymnal, uh, Hymns for Public and Private Worship, 1776. A couple of other names, William Cooper, John Newton, and the only hymn book of 1779. These all represent uh, the working of the revival in an English parish. I'm going to stop there. We could go on. We could talk about the Oxford movement, but I think that's for another day. So I'm going to hand it over to Zach. So one of the interesting things about 
the history of church music in the English language is even as you notice what Fred was talking about, it seemed like at every major juncture where some revival occurred, something new was happening that was coming out of the old, but different from the old, and it was receiving reaction from the old guard. And so at one point in time, as scandalous as this might be to say, Isaac Watts was a contemporary worship leader. I'm just going to leave that there, all right? And so were the Wesleys. Why? Because in a way, what they were doing was departing from what was received. And maybe part of the impulse, you heard it at every turn, was that there was a desire for heart to be engaged in this stuff. And they felt like something was dead about it. In fact, the urban legend about Isaac Watts is that he was walking away from church, kicking the dirt. His dad was walking with him, and Isaac was just complaining about how dully the psalms were being sung. And uh, so his dad said to him, why don't you write something better, boy? And so that's kind of the story of the birth of Isaac Watts writing all these great hymns that he wrote. But he broke with convention to do so. And isn't it funny how a hundred years later, it becomes the only thing that people want to sing. It becomes, you know, established tradition. So the long view of history tells us that history repeats itself and goes into cycles. I want everyone to look at Abide With Me. It's one of my favorite hymns, and perhaps it's one of my favorite hymns because it touches on something that hymns and worship tend to be a little afraid to touch on, suffering and death. Henry Francis Light, the hymn's author, he was a Scottish Anglican minister. And to fast forward, it was at the end of his life, the end of his life, the very end that he wrote this hymn. In fact, he had officiated his last Holy Communion service ever. And it was after that service, right after, that he sat down and wrote this hymn. Three weeks later, he died. Uh, This hymn has a lot to commend itself, and I want to spend our time looking at the text. But the reason it's powerful is simply because it's about death. Let's look at the text together. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. You see a quote here of a particular episode in Scripture. It comes from Luke 24. And in Luke 24, if you recall, Jesus has risen from the dead. And there's this very human and beautiful moment when he is on the road with two despondent believers, struggling and doubting. And those despondent believers thought, well, we believed in this Jesus guy, but he's dead. And suddenly he's walking with them. He preaches the word to to them. He opens up the scriptures and it's all about him. And then he sits down and he has a little bit of a communion service with them. He breaks the bread. And and in between those two moments of him preaching the word and receiving the sacrament is this moment where uh, those disciples say, Jesus, you know, you said you wanted to journey on, but stay with us because day is fading Be with us. Abide with us, Lord Jesus. And so it's into that human experience that we jump when uh, Henry Light writes this text. And I think it's a beautiful way of seeing how personal and how connected this text is with encountering Jesus himself. Fred and I both talked about the fact that this hymn, even though it talks about eventide, shouldn't just be sung in the evening because really we can view fast falls the eventide as just a metaphor for life so short And it's going to be over soon. Jesus, stay with me. 
the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. I mean, nowadays when everyone says our country is going to hell in a handbasket, this is a wonderful hymn for those of us who are despairing over what's happening in our world, you know, to be able to say the darkness deepens, would you abide with me, Lord Jesus? When other helpers fail and comforts flee, one could say that the whole journey of life is God stripping back other helpers and fleeting comforts of the things that make us think that we can trust in them. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. I love these lines. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power. Light was a true believer in the power of the gospel. It wasn't, the tempter's power can be foiled by grace and a bit of my effort. No, it's only God's grace that can truly thwart the work of the enemy. Who like thyself my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I don't know what is happening in your life right now, whether your life feels like clouds or sunshine. But one of the beauties of this hymn is to remind us that God's faithfulness abides in both of those moments, and God is faithful to you. Verse 3, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. I love these next lines. Ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. It doesn't mean tears don't hurt. That doesn't mean that the pain isn't real. But somehow the bitterness isn't quite so bitter because I know that you're with me, Lord Jesus. And then the great question of Paul, which totally follows from this. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. And before we get to the final verse, Light wrote eight verses to this. Many of them have disappeared from hymnals. But one of the verses I really like that I think was really appropriate, especially when you're an old person looking back on your life, is this forgotten verse. Hear this. Thou on my head in early youth did smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me, though I oft left thee. Unto the close, Lord, abide with me. I mean, you hear the reflection of a life. God, there were times where I was totally running away from you. There were times when I felt close to you and felt far from you. But at every moment, every step, you haven't left me. You know, what beautiful lines to remember at the beginning, middle, and end of your life. And the final verse, hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, Lord, abide with me. The Christian's life is always to be lived in a heavenward gaze, particularly gazing at the cross itself, Jesus Christ. So let's sing these four verses together. Charles Wesley's Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. It was published in 1747 in a book, I love the title of this, 
hymns for those that seek and those that have redemption in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a long title, but very good one. It was thought to partially be inspired by his sister's own conversion. Can you hear me? Am I cutting in and out? Oh, yeah. um, he wrote in his journal, she believed now that there was a new creature. She was full of earnest wishes for divine love. Here's the really interesting bit. It's also believed that this text is a reworking of a passage found in John Dryden's libretto to the Henry Purcell opera, King Arthur. The beginning of the passage, passage starts like this, and I would like you to follow along in the text uh, in your handout. This is how the uh, opera libretto goes. Fairest isle, all isles excelling, seat of pleasures and of loves. Venus here will choose her dwelling and forsake her Cyprian groves. And of course, we see the parallel with the opening verse of Wesley's hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, Joy of Heaven to Earth Come Down, Fix in Us Thy Humble Dwelling, All Thy Faithful Mercies Crown. It's incredible. Throughout music history, there's this constant balance or sometimes imbalance of the sacred having influence over the secular and vice versa, the secular having influence over the sacred. Uh, and there are times of history when that uh, one is over the other and, and vice versa. It's really incredible. And so we see it right here. It's amazing. This is one of the hymns that was included in Top Ladies Hymnal in 1776. Uh, and it was later included in John Wesley's 1780 collection of hymns for the use of people called Methodists. <laughs> <laughs> I love that title, too. The collection omitted the original second stanza. We don't have this in our hymnal. We only have three. The original had four. Uh, because John Fletcher, who is a contemporary and one of Methodism's first theologians, he objected to it. Here's the second stanza, original second stanza. Breathe, O oh breathe, thy loving spirit into every troubled breast. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find the promised rest. Take away our power of sinning. Alpha and Omega B, end of faith as its beginning, set our hearts at liberty. Fletcher's issue was with the line, take away our power of sinning. He wrote in 1775, is not this expression too strong? Would it not be better to soften it, as the Reverend Roland Hill has done, by saying, take away the love of sinning? Can God take away from us our power of sinning without taking away our power of free obedience? And Zach and I were talking about this uh, the other day and talking about how that's a, a sort of Arminian idea uh, and theology, um, one of the you know, theological debates of the time. And, but that's very interesting, that the, talking about the power of sinning as opposed to the love. And in many modern hymnals, you do see it as the love of sinning. But unfortunately, in a lot of hymnals such as ours, the best solution was thought to just get rid of the stanza altogether. My favorite verse of the hymn is the last verse. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, originally sinless, let us be. That's a very uh, Methodist uh, uh, theological point, by the way. Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. The last two lines especially, how we are all humbled before the great throne of our Lord, casting all of our own mortal crowns before the one who wears the eternal crown, completely lost and dumbfounded in wonder, awe, amazement, love, 
and praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just, it brings me to tears every time. I want to talk about the music really quickly. It's very interesting. The original song, I told you that, that we read, I read to you the original lyrics from the, the uh, opera. The music that Purcell set to the song was actually what the original hymn tune of the Wesley hymn was based on. It's not exact, but it was based on it. And the hymn tune was entitled Westminster. And what's really funny is because of its secular origin, Roland Hill, who was the one who, one of the ones who challenged the second stanza and, and suggested the change of the text, he said he saw no reason why the devil should have all the good tunes. <laughs> so I want to play this for you. This is what the original tune to Love Divine sounded like. I'm just going to go on. say this right now, that is hard to sing. Very difficult. Lots of tricky rhythms, lots of leaps. Um, I'm glad we have new, new tunes to this. And believe it or not, it, it, I think in most hymnals to this day, uh, it was later changed to another tune. And do you know what that tune is? It's Beecher. Most hymnals sing it to this tune, which we sing, There is a Wideness in God's Mercy to. It works. Um, you know, actually, as a, as a point, you can see at the very bottom of a Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, you see a little quarter note, which equals 112. That's a tempo suggestion, um, which we often ignore. Um, and uh, then you'll see the, the numbers 87.87.d. Now, that's a metrical index is what that is. And texts that have the same metrical ascription you can interchange the tunes. So that's why you can sing, you could even sing um, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy to the tune that we're about to, to sing. Before we sing through this, though, I want to play one more tune for you, which is the tune that a lot of Brits know this tune to. Um, and it's the tune called Blainworn. Now, we sing it to Hifferdal, which is a great Welsh tune. Uh, it was first published by Roland Pritchard, in a children's songbook of all things. But Blainwern is the other tune, also another Welsh tune. Just want to play it for you.
I think it's a lovely tune. I think it's really great. Um, but it's, it could be often hard to let go of the tunes that we know. So let's sing the tune now that we know so, so well. what we'll do is this will be our last hymn um, and then we'll open it up to some questions. Rock of Ages is probably my favorite hymn in English hymnody. We sang it at our wedding. Um, it means a lot to me and probably I would guess means a lot to people in this room. Augustus Top Lady didn't live past the age of 38 and it was in the final years of his life as well uh, that he wrote this hymn I want to share with you the story because we talked about how he and Wesley kind of went at it with each other. They were known in England for writing tracts back and forth, theological tracts that were sort of refuting each other. And just to give you an idea of how human 
and how broken this interaction was, I'm going to uh, read you some of the things that they said about each other. Top Lady being a convinced Calvinist, Wesley being a real champion of Arminian theology. Uh, Top Lady once wrote, uh, and he's writing this of Wesley, I believe him to be the most rancorous hater of the gospel system that ever appeared in this island. He was talking about Great Britain. And another time he wrote, Wesley is guilty of satanic shamelessness, of acting the ignoble part of a lurking, sly assassin, of unity and sophistry of a Jesuit with the authority of a pope. And back in those days, it was like the worst thing to call someone else Roman Catholic, right? So that was the, that was the vilest of insults that he could say. Um, this about a man. So Wesley was 50 years older at this point, uh, and at every point, than Augustus Toplady. Uh, <laughs> And he, and, and by this time, Wesley was one of the most honored men in England. Uh, Wesley, on the other hand, kept the controversy on a more impersonal plane. And though he did say in the preface of, on his sermon on free grace, I dare not speak of the deep things of God in the spirit of a prize fighter or a stage player. And on another occasion, he said, I do not fight with chimney sweeps. All right. So this got really personal. Um, one of Wesley's theological contentions that we were already kind of entertaining, that in my, in my opinion, and in the opinion of a lot of folks at the Advent, especially your leaders, placed many people under an unnecessary burden. His opinion, uh, his theological contention, was that a believer could achieve sinless holiness in this lifetime, and that a believer could live eventually, you know, at the point of, of not sinning. You know, a believer could live without sinning. Top Lady really felt like this struck at the heart of one's hearing clearly, your need of and reception of the gospel. So when he published Rock of Ages, he first published it in a gospel magazine in 1776 with this title. Now get this title, A Living and Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer in the World. Okay, this was the title of this hymn. Rock of Ages that says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So the holiest believer in the world can only pray this prayer in living and in dying. Uh, I love it. It's beautiful. Let's look at the text. Rock of Ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And yes, there's an urban legend that has Toplady uh, walking through a, a storm and needing to hide himself. And so scandalously, he hides himself inside the cleft of a rock and finds his inside his uh, pocket a playing card and writes the tune or writes the text to Rock of Ages on that playing card. I happen to think it's urban legend, but it sounds nice and juicy, right? Um, let the water and the blood from thy wounded side that flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So he's talking about when Jesus' side was pierced on the cross. And the gospel writer says that out from Jesus' side came water and blood. And Toplady took that uh, poetically to say, let it, let it cure me and cleanse me from sin's guilt and power. Should my tears forever flow... Could my zeal no longer know? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. This really was to say, I don't care how earnest I could act toward God. That won't save me. Right? 
In my hand, no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This second verse is actually a conflation from the, the Episcopalian hymn writer or hymn compilers of our 1982 hymnal of two verses, which are actually, I think, worth separating out and us doing, but I won't go into that now. And finally, verse three, while I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyelids close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, even then God asks, why should I let you into my heaven? And Top Lady's response and our response is, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let's sing that together. <laughs>